Peggy 18. This vulnerability enables theft, but we assume the impact was minimal since very few people use these functions. <laughs> oh, did you see what CVH was posted there, VH? No, what's that about? Oh, Ledger's Bitcoin app uh, has a vulnerability in it in its Miniscript implementation that allows for theft of fun funds, but they presume it's safe because they don't think anybody was using these features. <laughs> yeah, especially like if you're using Miniscript, you're probably not using Ledger. So <laughs> Pretty... it was Ledger that was using Miniscript. Ledger was, as I understand it, I mean, I've had this for all of 10, 10 seconds. Ledger was using Miniscript, uh, and in their implementation of it, there was a problem. And this problem enables theft of your coins. Yeah, I don't use Ledger, so this isn't really a problem for me. But for everyone using a Ledger, you know, maybe stop. <laughs> I mean, ideally, you should be able to, I think, see these transactions on the blockchain. Maybe once they're spent from it, the script is visible anyways. Yeah, but how do you know if they're generated with Ledger or something else, you know? It's, it's oh, kinda... the script should be the problem. Oh, um, oh, really? Yeah, it, create, it creates a bad Bitcoin script. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we should just be able to control F and, and find it. <laughs> the mini script syntax was supposed to be transcoded to an op total stack to alt stack call and an op from alt stack call but instead it was just the op to alt stack call that got transcribed to actual bitcoin script um and yeah i guess this creates some security issues that allow you to spend without a signature as described in the linked disclosure interesting i wonder if this is like do you have to go into developer mode to activate Miniscript for Ledger? Is this, I honestly have no idea. This seems kind of... Yeah, this seems very... Oh no, there's an HWI from Bitcoin Core. Uh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like they're just writing bad scripts through a bad Miniscript implementation. That's my interpretation of this bug. I wonder how it happened, you know, like... Um, I can only speculate, like, I've got as much information here as you do, but uh, I presume it's, as they're saying, they uh, they have their own Miniscript implementation, and it, what their Miniscript implementation does is it takes a Miniscript code and it compiles it down to Bitcoin op scripts. And in their compilation process was an error such that the miniscript code wasn't correctly represented by the opcodes it produced. Oh, so it's a compiler error? You can kind of think of it like that. Okay. Maybe. They made a miniscript compiler, which outputs... <laughs> That's how I understand this yeah. at this time, four minutes into this discussion. Interesting. Or investigation. Yeah, that's my first glance. That's what it appears to, is, has happened here. Well, like, this happens every so often, you know, like, you get a hardware wallet that screws up, and, um, I don't know, it, it's kind of a good thing, kind of a bad thing, it, it makes you appreciate people who are disclosing things.
really does highlight all the work being done. I got cookie in my face if you want to stop In that case, I'm going to drink some coffee. Do we want to start recording, or are we already doing that? Well, oh yeah, I'm already, I'm already recording. Um, well, you missed my whole pregame show. My pregame show was pretty good. Oh yeah, what was that about? Mostly how much I hate you. <laughs> because I'm late? Yeah. No. <laughs> and everybody's like, no, we can't hate Fitch, he's so wonderful. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess he is. <laughs> well, I'm the goofball, you're, you're, the, you're the wizard, so... I get to be the mm, jester. The word you're looking for is bad cop and good cop. <laughs> you're the bad cop. I'm the good cop. That's that's for sure. Yeah, that's what I'm, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to be the bad cop. I, I can't do it. I'm just, I like people liking me. <laughs> I like people liking me too. Some people like the bad cop. I can pull off I'm a bad cop. I'm just a cynic by nature. I can pull, pull off a bad cop sometimes. Sometimes I get... I get there, but it takes it takes a little bit. You're a sweetheart. I don't think you could truly be mean to anybody. <laughs> well, I, I was mean. I was mean to David Bailey, apparently. So th- there's one. Person. Oh, he is really mad at me. <laughs> Did he respond to you in the last twenty four hours? He responded to me twice. Oh, really? What about? Well, you made a post responding to his. He, post, he never responded back to that one. He never responded. No, he never did respond back to that one. I noticed that. <laughs> he did respond back to me, though, shaming <laughs> him. I just listed all the things he's done and told, let him shame on you, you absolute cancer to this ecosystem. <laughs> Fuck off, David Bailey. <laughs> and so that that got a response from him. <laughs> let me just dig it up here. I'll see what he said. Yeah, let's see if I can find this post. Because I'm, I'm screen recording at the same time, so like it's kind of neat. People can follow me on uh, when they watch the recording and kind of see the content that we're, we're talking about. So let's see if we can find this post. Uh, it's probably in my... Oh, yeah. He, called, he said I was unhinged and wished me the best of luck. Um, I told him he can keep on shitcoining, using his platform to enable scammers, and the community's going to keep calling him out. And he, he jokingly says to me in his next reply that he's sorry that he hurt me and that he's excited to see me cancel Sailor next. So, of course, like, <laughs> what do I do? But I like going on Sailor. <laughs> uh, I have so much to say about Sailor. Well, even Sailor's kind of uh, recently been kind of like, oh, shit, the, the ordinal stuff is fine. It's like innovation kind of. Well, of course it is, yeah. But, of course. You know, he's been on... It's all part of the curve, right? Like, that's just where he is on the yeah, learning curve. Yeah, he's yeah. going to shitcoin his little bit, and he's going to justify it being like, they're in Bitcoin, it's fine. And then, you know, just just like some of us did with Counterparty or RSK, it's part of the curve. People go through it, and it'll be fine. You don't gotta hate the player, hate the game. So it's just dumb. That's fine. Maybe he'll learn, maybe he won't. Same is true of David Bailey. The problem I have with people like Sailor and David Bailey is that they've amplified their voice to the point where they're spreading their wrong, like as I described David Bailey in some cases, like a cancer. Like David Bailey's company, um, Bitcoin Magazine, has been responsible repeatedly for uh, enabling shitcoins, endorsing scammers, promoting businesses that were scams that the community had identified were scams that host platforms to scams. Um, and the same is true for the conferences like Miami conference like 
pretty much every time that he's had this conference, it has been a platform for scammers in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's been an enormous waste of money, just functionally useless corporate nonsense, just meant to make money. And that's David Bailey in a nutshell. It seems is money before Bitcoin, before community, before. No, he's a clickbait journalist. That's what he is. Yeah, I was having a discussion with someone kind of along these lines the other day. Is like, is there any Bitcoin company? And and my thing is like, no, there are actually no Bitcoin companies because the priority of a Bitcoin company, in quotes, is the company. It's the company's script. It's the company's stock. It's the company directors, board, employees. So there's different priorities in a company structure that's either public or private. And often these can conflict with uh, Bitcoin, what's good for Bitcoin. Um, but sometimes- Or what's good for their users as well, yeah, like sure. their, their consumers. So I'm just saying like, just because someone says they're a Bitcoin company, actually, no, there's there are no Bitcoin companies. There are no- And I'd agree with you. And I'd say we see this over and over, even in the most devout Bitcoiners, like for example, WAP is a good one. Um, WAP is a great Bitcoiner, but he serves shitcoiners on his platform because there's money there and he has to put his business first. We see it in the excuses of folks like Peter McCormick, who appeal to his business and his employees and the people that rely on him when he justifies having endorsed things like BlockFi. Um, it's just like a, a common norm. We see it every exchange. Like, you know, this is how business is done. Of course, we list shitcoins. This is, this is normal. This is like, if they pay us, this is our business model. Yeah. And that, and business ethics aren't ethics. And Bitcoiners deserve a trustless ecosystem and to be custodians of their own coins and fully sovereign in Bitcoin, the network itself, not, you know, following whatever these companies say. And that, that almost was the crux of the block size wars. Right. And like this goes for especially Bitcoin mining companies too. Like they're all about the stock and shilling their stock. MicroStrategy shilling that stock up to the moon, right? Like this. So I'm just saying there's there's competing, um, sometimes complementary incentives at play, and there are no Bitcoin companies. Like and it, here's another thing that people say like. They talk about, oh, the Bitcoin industry or the crypto industry. I hate the word industry because it's just it's emblematic of this this company kind of corporate uh, mindset. So it's it's very it's very not Bitcoin, in my opinion. Absolutely. And you see that um, in many uh, countries where the, the crypto industry or Bitcoin industries culture is all around, you know, lobbying and compliance and KYC and things that really are almost antithetical to Bitcoin itself. Like Bitcoin is inherently pseudonymous money. Like it's as private as you want it to be. And it's money in your custody and it's money that eliminates trust. And inherently the way these companies approach Bitcoin is always compromising on those fundamental properties that make it unique and somehow almost invariably turning it into the exact financial ecosystem that we already see and have. Invariably, it seems, turning it into an analog of exactly what already exists. A tower of companies and credit and functionality that relies on each other, and when a piece of the tower collapses, so does 
tower. And they want to monetize you as a data point. They want your social security number, your date of birth, your name, address, phone number, and they want to build like a database of all this information and then resell it and repackage to whoever wants it. And, you know, like it, it's interesting because we're getting into the the age of artificial intelligence kind of meme stuff. And so like all this data is becoming valuable in terms of making these. Yeah, it's actionable. Yeah. You can use it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's it's getting to an interesting point where now this stuff, th these data points about you are is even more valuable because it's actionable. And that includes historic data. I mean, we know just referring to North Americans um, from the Snowden leaks, the vast, vast amounts of surveillance that have been going on for decades. So like we're talking, there's probably decades old data that hasn't been fully parsed for valuable information, I'm sure that still is just waiting for methodologies to be applied to it. Yeah, the NSA probably has like terabytes of like, what's, what's more than a terabyte? I don't know, exabytes? Petabytes. Yeah, just crazy amounts of data just stored away somewhere waiting to be mined. Um, there's actually a really good show, a recent show on this, it's called Rabbit Hole. And it's got that, that actor from um, 24, the show, Jack Bauer. Peter Sutherland? Yeah, that guy. So he's in it, and it's it's pretty good. It's got some um, crypto stuff, but it's it's got some angles on, on this discussion about data and control and, and all this stuff. So it's kind of fun. Check it out. In the ways it does and doesn't reach Bitcoin, it does in so many ways. You know, the, the fight for privacy is definitely going to be, or already is, uh, you know, the fight of our generation in terms of you know, our digital civil rights, our right to our privacy of our information, our data. Yeah, we're, um, we're so behind on that. It's like, I don't know if that's recoverable. Like, it's kind of like we're going to get to... Might not be for us, but for our children. Yeah, that'd be ideal. And that's like, I mean, oh, to me, that's the goal is like our generation has made a huge mistake in how over eager we've been to abandon our privacy and our, our rights as consumers, as human beings for convenience. This convenience is great, don't get me wrong, it's just like we can have our cake and eat it too. It's just, you know, it takes some work up front and then you get the convenience. And like, I feel like Bitcoin's really embolic of that because you've got to do this work up front. You got to learn, you got to figure out what it was, how to work it, what wallet you want to use, what trust model works for you, how you're going to back up your coins, what recovery looks like. You got to figure out all this stuff. But then once you've got that figured out, it's pretty much on autopilot. It's just like having a bank account. You just use it and it's fantastic and you get to be really lazy about it. And that's how more things should be hmm. do work up front don't expect to have everything just you know current app culture is very just give people what they want yeah like a that good, makes people dumb they can't make decisions a good rule of thumb is like the more convenient you're finding your bitcoin experience the more likely you're you're in a mouse trap <laughs> and that's just kind of a truth is like there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done a lot of education and learning in order to get to a place where you're kind of in a very 
safe, secure, and self-sovereign position. Um, and there's a lot of traps out there designed to kind of reel you into a, a place where you're not as informed as you as you really should be. So, this is something I'm really personally struggling with right now because, um, and I assume other app developers struggle with it too. But like, I'm building a tool set, and the first version of this tool, it was just basically a readme of instructions that explained, you know, here's how to find your macaroon file. Here's where it is on different operating systems. Here's where you can download the latest version of LND. Here's how you can run LND. This is the order you click things. And it, it was just, you know, like education and expecting them to be able to do it themselves. But eventually, a nagging voice made me cave and I added at the end of all of these explanations and like in the most inconvenient UI place possible, a button that says like, I understand that I can do this, that I could be self-sovereign, but like, please do this for me. I need this right now. Right. And that button just like, you know, does all the work for you, like an umbral note kind of thing. And I think that's the right approach. You give people both options, the self-sovereign option and the convenient option, but you try to steer them via UX to the self-sovereign option. You don't try to trap them inside your little ecosystem and like sort of disempower them disempower your users by doing that like and i think umbral do, does that i think some other um apps do that as well but umbral that is exactly what i'm afraid of i'm afraid of through making things too easy i will disempower users when the goal is the exact opposite well they have to work to get to that easy place and that's what you're doing with the ux it's like here is what you're supposed to be doing at the very bottom yeah, you can opt out of that if you want to, and if you're in an emergency, that that totally makes sense. Well, I'm glad I got your endorsement. I'll be excited to get it out from under me. I'd really like to get a tip bot on this server and something non-custodial would be... Well, it's really all I'll accept at this point. I've done the custodial tip bots before, and I just don't like managing them. They're a pain in the ass. Yeah, so you're going to be able to... Um sort of set this up with your own node, right? Your own lightning node and kind of interact yeah. with it. Um, you were showing me a preview of it yesterday and it looks pretty simple. It like it's not even, it, like it's not a, a bulky app or anything. It's like less than a megabyte of HTML. Oh yeah, it's like 19 kilobytes. Yeah, so like, it, <laughs> like, you don't even need an app store for that or anything. It's just like you, you download the file from somewhere and you run it on your phone. See, or... that was always my goal. See, and I ran into a problem in that you can do that. But LND, LND I'm sorry, out of the box has self-signed certificates for its TLS. So when you're talking to it, um, it's providing us a, a certificate that's not in your certificate authority on your computer. So you as a user have to add it to your certificate authority. That's going to be different depending on, you know, your OS and all these things. And it's a more advanced pain in the ass depending on the circumstance. And I decided that like that eliminated my easy options. Now I couldn't, I, that I couldn't work around that because it's a security feature, right? Your browser can't allow you to arbitrarily install certificates. <laughs> you can't work like that. So. Um, I wrapped the whole thing in an Electron app, which is much bulkier than a 19 kilobyte web page. 
and could be an app but it's it's just basically a wrapper for a web view for this thing so it can get around its um security issues yeah i wonder if there's a workaround for that because there isn't because yeah. if there was it would be a security issue for the browser itself you could like prick people into thinking they have a secure connection but they don't it's from a certificate that you added the certificate authority and it's just pretending to be that website if you could do this and sometimes you can but like those are like exploits mm -hmm. they will and should get patched if they you know come up interesting the way to do this is to manually install the certificate yourself as the end user that you can do and in that way yeah you can use this with a 19 kilobyte html file that's all you need mm. So how, much, how big is a certificate? It's probably only like one kilobyte or something. Oh yeah, or they're really small. Yeah, even teaching people how to do that, like how to install a certificate, I don't, I haven't done that before, so that'd be interesting. Um, yeah, and it's like I, I include those kinds of instructions in my increasingly long README UI thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I said, I still wanted to provide an option for people who were in a hurry, I'd read the disclaimers, knew the risks of what they were doing. I wanted to just auto install stuff anyways. So for those who don't know, what is this lightning app going to be used for? Yeah. So basically what this is, is it's middleware that sits on top of your LND node. Um, and it just serves over WebSocket connections that you initiate. Uh, it serves invoices. So the idea is that you tell it what services, let's say the social media tip bot here, the Bitcoin chat tip bot, we'll say. You want it so that when people type exclamation point tip and your name and a number, that they get an invoice for that much from your L&D node. And the way that it works is you run this little piece of middleware on a computer of yours. You hook that up to your L&D node by either telling it where you're to find your L&D node or it'll automatically detect it if it can or if you don't have an LND node you, it'll help you install an LND node and then from there it'll ask about your LND node status it'll get invoices from it and it'll push those invoices to the social media service whenever the social media service queries for them interesting okay so you can basically it, it's kind of a wrapper for it, it's almost like a Zeus wallet but very lightweight or like a Phoenix wallet, very lightweight where it connects back to your, your sovereign lightning node, but also interacts with some kind of tip bot in a chat, like, uh, on here on discord or maybe somewhere else. Yeah. It's not really like, you know, a, it's not really a wallet per se. Um, it, it does connect to a couple API features that allow you basic wallet activities, such as making a channel. Uh, sweeping the wallet, unlocking it, creating a wallet, things like that, things that are necessary for somebody who doesn't have a node to get going for the first time and who doesn't want to mess around with the command line. It's more of a bridge. Um, it's like a bridge, right? So. Exactly right. It is a bridge. Um, it's, it's a bridge between your LND node and a social media service or bot that allows the social media service or bot to uh, securely and privately and without you exposing your computer to the internet, ask you for invoices. So that that's interesting, because like, think of all the bots that could kind of connect using something like this. 
I know there's like a Reddit tip bot for the subreddit R Bitcoin. So that that's one example where this could come in handy potentially. Um, so a major downside of this mm. is that um, you know you can only accept tips while you are running this service. If your LND isn't up, oh. if this middleware bridge isn't up, oh. you can't accept tips. So you have to be just like Lightning in general. You have to be online to use it. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah that that is that is a slight caveat. You, you gotta really put out there i think because that that's an important point like this this app or this bridge needs to be online if you're going to be accepting bitcoin tips all the time or or at a time that is unknown you know so that's a that's an interesting point yeah it's basically um you know a very very minuscule client server based um bridge layer for invoices is really all it is it has an authentication mechanism where uh, you send when you first connect to a social media service claiming that you're a specific ID on the service it'll send that ID a DM with a challenge string and then the user has to input to the challenge string back into the UI of their middleware and then from that point on uh, the social media service will recognize messages signed by that node specifically as that user so like you, you can change computers you can go on and off you can do everything except for change your node and you don't need to re-authenticate with the social media service for that ID. But it does be, need to be online, right? So that... Yeah, is, you know, yeah. and the other thing is you need to have registered. So like if somebody hasn't, uh, on the social media service, hasn't registered for this service by running the software, um, they can't receive tips. Because it's not custodial, so I can't just like hold a tip and hope that somebody signs up to take it and then take it for myself if they don't. Mm -hmm. Which is what you know they do. So yes, people have to actually use it, and in order for it to have any use, it it doesn't just sit in a wallet that I'm holding uh, temporarily while somebody signs up to claim it. Interesting. So we were talking about earlier something like kind of a scenario, and it was it was kind of a neat scenario you you propositioned, which was say like this community this discord or some other community of like-minded bitcoiners come to a conclusion that you know we want to you know we want to advocate for a soft fork proposal yeah within the larger bitcoin community how would we do that you know or um how would we become more active in in doing that what do you what do you think about your what are your thoughts on like being an activist in terms of uh, getting getting consensus for a soft fork or something. Yeah, so I think that there's a process for proposing soft forks and other kinds of upgrades to Bitcoin, the Bit process. I think that um, if you as a community can get through, you know, an internal process of educating each other about upcoming BIPs and deciding what BIPs need your support and how with or without your support you expect these code changes to play out and whether they'll be adopted and after you know as a community coming to the conclusion that you know we, we would we would soft fork for this we would we would deploy this with a UASF if it came down to it 
Um, maybe that's an indication that if something's blocking the progress of that BIP becoming an active soft fork, that the community could, using the existing methods to bring something to a soft fork, uh, address it. We could, for example, um, you know, if there's no sponsor for a BIP anymore, like Jeremy Rubin has kind of left CTV, which is why we started talking about this. What if, you know, a bunch of community members wanted to basically sponsor it themselves and kind of like make a push towards finding developer and user and minor consensus for a soft fork? Um, that's an example of like a barrier, or maybe there's like some other reason why there is a BIP proposal that maybe is, is, is reaching roadblocks that we as a community can exert social pressure to attempt to unroadblock. Yeah, there's a couple things in there. So the first one is the, the activation method, which itself is a decision and is a um, historically seems to be a somewhat contentious one uh, within Bitcoin circles. Um, mm -hmm. So that that itself is like is a pivot point. It's like it's this choice, um, and you have people on one side or the other. So, and and my my feeling on UASF is that it, it is it's a powerful choice you can make it but i think you do need very strong reasoning for it um and and i feel like if if it's possible that um the soft work we want the feature or the bug patch we want is going to happen without a uasf um Here's where oh man I'm I'm on a tight I'm on a tight rope right here. <laughs> most most soft forks whether they're going to succeed or fail you know don't don't require our specific intervention or anybody's specific intervention right like um they they go through the process but specifically there is a lot of issues that it seems at least to me it seems that the broader Bitcoin community could use more sober second thought about um, issues like CTV, um, issues like UASFs versus MAFs. Um, and I think forming smaller groups where we can work through all of the discussion and disagreement around some of these things is a good platform instead of doing those things on a broader scale. And if we can find some resolutions in these things among smaller groups, then maybe from there we can take it through the official channels and start to spread, you know, that knowledge and understanding to other groups. Yes, I agree. Like if if this group, which is very, fairly large and has very differing viewpoints, if we can get to consensus on a direction and um, an activation method, then that is that is saying something because we are very. Um, yeah, we don't agree. You no, know, we don't agree. We don't agree on anything. So if we were to agree, then that's telling you something, and it it probably means we should be going somewhere. But 
that's my bias. Well, it's just, and also I think that there's a lot of smart people here. I think that there's a lot of people here that care about Bitcoin and are node runners. And who else is going to speak for what you want in your node but you? And why not have a couple hundred friends at your back? I think it's also important to be honest about the reasoning for why we are doing things. Um, like if if we are pushing for uh, UASF soft fork for the purpose of making a point about UASF, maybe I think that it's better to be honest about that motivation. Than... Yeah, I strongly agree. If that if that is what you wanted to do, then yeah. that should just be. And I think just for the record, I think that that'd be very dumb. Yes, I think that UASF is it's a means to an end it's not a perfect means but to do with no fucking end is ridiculous you you do have to have a justifiable cause for it so it it kind of sucks because you have to have the stars align for you to make your point (laughs) so it's so much more than the stars because like you can't can't ever demonstrate consensus around a usa uasf it's impossible oh yeah perfectly simple like there's no way to measure it yeah and And, like the miners can just take credit the, the miners can just take credit after the fact. It's like, oh, yeah, we actually activate. No, no. But, like, just just well, if they want to, if they want their, you know, activate at the same time business. And, I mean, like, yeah, they did activate. They activated for themselves. Just like I activated for me on my UASO. That's fine. That, I don't need to take anything away from them to have something for myself. So this, this is a good, oh, I want to focus on this part. Because, to me, it's like there were two camps during the block size wars within Bitcoin that were you know against the big blockers it was like the U- the uasf people and the the mass people who just wanted to get this done and it feels like both of them think they won and both of them did win the the argument against block like the big blocks and so it's it i feel like both camps feel like they claim they the, did the victory and they do but they feel like they individually do some of them do but i think see it's... i was a mass camper at that point in time i was mm-hmm. very mass fee i wanted a mass i believed in arguments about state security uh, because they're true they're just like they're true a, a uasf is less secure a uasf is easier to sybil but like there's nuance to that argument that i didn't appreciate like for example a mass you can sybil as well like it turned out that the signaling that miners were doing was not at all related to the code that they were running so there was there was no relationship at all to their activation readiness and what they were signaling which you know is the exact problem that UASFs have so how how do you want to survey node users like I can spin up a thousand it doesn't represent like 10,000 nodes or one node they're the same they represent me and my economic activity and you know every my sovereignty how do you how are you going to measure that you can't so like every UASFF every flag day it has an inherent risk to it that cannot be denied even by proponents of a UASF which I am now and the reason I am now is because I realized that this risk can't really be denied anyways. And in the block size wars, I believe it is people taking that risk that resulted in the wonderful outcome that we did and enabled the victory that the mass people enjoyed that they were able to activate. So my thing is it might be both like, and it's hard to measure one side or the other. It is both. It is two parts of a game theoretical composition 
that without both is weaker. Yes. But with both creates the incentives to go forward and upgrade honestly. That's that's an interesting angle because like I think there's binary thinking and it's one or the other, and when really it might be actually this combination of of uh, you know one pushing the other or one backing up the other or just I think it's a relationship a bit. So if we were to be honest, so pivoting to like oh the theoretical soft fork that we want to push maybe um i guess we could we could say we're we're representing the uasf side of things and that see i think a lot of uasfers agree with what you're saying mm-hmm. they like you know they're happy for someone to delegate their you know activation of a fork to an to another node or to a miner or whatever the hell they want they, they're just not happy to do it for themselves Mm, okay what do you mean by that because like from my i feel like i feel like the mass people hate me and the uasf people like luke Mm. because we represent an intractable danger to the thing they value most which is the state security and we know and we value it too we just feel that by threatening it we're actually protecting the whole by aligning the incentives for all the actors to move forward in a calm and collected manner. I wouldn't call it calm. I wouldn't call it calm or collected. It's, I think it's very messy, but it does get done. It does get done. It's a gun to the head of the actors in the ecosystem saying, like, we are going to risk the chain state security. It's going to happen. You can't stop us. So you better get on board. Yeah, with or without you, we're going this way, and it seems like a good idea. Yeah. So, you know, do... and then it's like quotes in the wild, triggers pulled, bitch. <laughs> like, what are you gonna do? And it's like Batman and the Joker, and Batman's yes, that we're disrupting civil society, and it's like Joker's like, don't you understand? You need me. I'm everything you need, Batman. You can't have you Batman. Each other. You can't have Batman without Joker. That's right. It's a dynamic. Uh, it's interesting. Um, that's how I feel about subs <laughs> and maths. So that's that's the interesting thing. Like activation methods, it's like there's two choices or two two things you have to worry about. It's the actual it's the actual proposal for the soft fork. What do you want to be implemented, and is it a good idea or not? And then okay, what's the activation of it? So. It, I would really like to get the second question off the table by standardizing a USF or flag day, even backed MASF um, upgrade mechanism. I'd like to standardize the deployment methodologies. Oh, I can I can make a standard for it, but it's very much in the in the humor of Peter Willa with his standardization of um, of the cap on the supply of bitcoin (laughs) it'll be like it'll just be recognizing the nuances of the situation that we just outlined and that will be the standard (laughs) yeah no no one's gonna agree on the standards so we've got bip 8 we've got bip 9 um we've got people mixing and matching um people just can't agree about how they want their forks to activate 
And that's okay. Sometimes that's worked out for us. Like sometimes, like we did with Sega, it's just we had a whole bunch of people activating in a whole bunch of different ways. Well, that's my and point. Honestly, that's my point. The the standard or the activation method standardization is that we can't agree. <laughs> it's like we so we have two options. Um, we have two camps: MASF and UASF, and these guys go. But see, technically, back in block size wars, at least, like they they. With this gun to their head, they masked it the last second before the OESF had to activate it, right? So, well, you've made doing this, so, you've made this point that some people UASF'd and some people yes. masked, so it was both. It was both. Yes, I, I, it necessarily had to be when describing the whole of the network that resulted. Yes, but some it, people were not running mask code. <laughs> And lots of people were not running UAS code. It was very much an intolerant minority. And that back to our you know discussion about what impact you know, we have as a community. Um, like I said, there's a lot of smart people here. If we collectively can ever think something, um, we, we, that's not to be taken lightly. So let me let me go back. We can do something with that. Let me go back a little bit. What what brought this thought process? Like, what? Why did this? Talking quit? about CTV ah. and what the path forward for CTV was. So interesting thing about CTV is that it's come up again, which is nice. So let me do some background here. Uh, Jeremy Rubin put forward CTV as a soft fork. Um, he was the only he was the only author on it. I think it did get some review. Um, and there, a lot of review. Yeah, and there was there's a whole list of people actually that were acting it. So it got a lot of review, but the activation method was um, a bit contentious. The communication was also a little rough, so it didn't didn't get a lot of. And also the timing was also kind of like very very recent after the taproot activation. So it's kind of like people were like, ah, we already did something. Why are we doing another thing? Um, so that didn't go through, but the nice thing is that CTV is coming back through um, Ope Vault. It's like, um, so Ope Vault is another BIP and it's, it's being spearheaded by James. Um, and he's come to the conclusion as well that, oh, okay, CTV is actually the right way to do this as well. So it's kind of nice. We got peer review saying, we got two people like double confirmation here we got jeremy rubin and james both agreeing on this yeah this is probably the right way to go about things so that and james basically independently came yeah. up with the same idea while trying to do the thing without it yeah it's like well shit, yeah oh we actually need ctv <laughs> so that's that's a very good sign that's that's science <laughs> I don't know if that's science, but it's definitely, I like independently, you know, coming to the same need for something. Now, I don't think that we need CTV. I think that Bitcoin would probably be perfectly content and stable if you never upgraded it with more opcodes again. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have it. There's a whole bunch of cool use cases that we could get out of CTV, including things like uh, really sweet channel factories, um, things like just happened with the mempool congestion we'd be able to defer transactions in a way that we could level out that mempool congestion significantly. And that should do wonders for fees. Um, so things like that, I think, would interest users, at least if the complaints about fees have been 
have been as loud as they seem to have been to me the last couple of days. And just to be um, just to be clear on what you just said, that is scaling lightning even more than it already scales. So we we can get to maybe like billions of users at the same time using lightning um, sovereignly with pet channels in and out. Um, like just my feeling on that is like, oh, okay, channel factories might actually double our capacity. For lightning is that is that a right feeling what do you think about numbers wise channel factories double our capacity i mean like a channel factory is effectively having one transaction that represents a whole bunch of transactions for a whole bunch of people representing a whole bunch of channels being created and so through this one transaction you you actually it's like it's like channel batching basically so we're talking like and... 50x <laughs> Like it's a times? good question. Yeah. I don't actually have a number for you. Um, I'm all about the numbers. I would, it's I I would think pretty significant. I don't. I mean, I'm a little medicated at the moment. I don't exactly have anything in front of me, so I, I don't venture to do math. <laughs> but this is a huge, huge improvement to be batching channels and channel factories, being able to delay uh, commits. Uh, to level out traffic a huge issue in lightning is like emergency situations where high mempool rbf pinning and you gotta you gotta settle your transaction because somebody's committed fraud against you so you know just doing those two things channel factories more efficiently and congestion management in the mempool through ctv stuff would i think be a pretty big improvement for lightning and then there's APO, which would be another huge improvement for Lightning and enable L2 channels. So that's like, oh, that's different. Lots we can do to improve. There's many things that I'm interested in so, that we can do to improve stuff. So is APO, APO is a different proposal. Any, pre, any prev out? Is that a yeah, different one? any previous output. And it's got some use case overlap with CTV, which Ooh. is one of the things that made CTV a little bit more contentious especially considering APO has been in the pipeline so much longer, but CTV is simpler. Interesting, because like, I wonder if these things could interact with each other, um, and or if if they'll, like the devs and whatever, will decide to package them together as like, oh, a huge scaling upgrade, like APO and CTV at the same time, oh, fault. Like that'd be kind of fun, but also, um, hmm. Like, I wonder how these things interact with each other, because it, it well, seems... Well, that's basically what the op-vault proposal originally was, is three op-codes, one of which is a CTV equivalent. That's basically what it is. Oh, okay. Kind of like how Taproot was a whole bunch of bips and op-codes. Yeah. Gorange points out that um, channel factories are a massive improvement for channel management, which exponentially increases overall throughput in their opinion and i strongly agree channel factories are phenomenal i think congestion management would be really freaking nice there's a really weird proposal in one of jeremy rubin's uh calendar posts for a decentralized bitcoin mining pool where you use ctv to defer payments to like other people that have found blocks in your pool and it's it's weird and it's, it's crazy. I, I haven't looked into it much, but like I like the words decentralized mining pool. I think it would be very interesting to see Jeremy come back and, and kind of not spearhead, but co-sponsor some of this activity 
um, because everyone like, likes a comeback story. Um, me especially, like I love you, like I love the underdogs. I love it when you guys come back and kind of prove yourself. So it'd be it'd be interesting to see Jeremy come back and be be a little more public about his thoughts on where this is going. Um, so Jeremy, if you're listening, come back and I, I'd love to hear from you and see what what's happening in your mind about this stuff. Yeah, I'd also like Jeremy to come back. I'd like him also to you know stop pitching it to us through like the lens of all the shit coins and scams it'll make easier like yes it will but fuck stop we don't care <laughs> and who Matt no no more speedy trial not none of this like years working with the development community on approval and review isn't the same as years working with the node community on approval and review oh, and so that's I, what needed to happen I just had a thought here what if um, a good strategy might be okay James representing the masf kate the mass masf camp and being like straight edge over here in bitcoin core working on opalt and then like jeremy rubin comes at back as a rebel and does like some uasf client stuff and <laughs> you got them both working yeah. <laughs> that'd be kind of fun yeah i don't think he would because he was a mass proponent too yeah but that, that's he, he, that makes him even more fascinating he came the, the to the pivot. dark side yes we're the yes. dark side by the He's, way. he becomes we're a rebel definitely he becomes a rebel and he has reason to it, it kind of fits the narrative oh yeah i like this <laughs> come to the dark side jeremy we would love to open you welcome you with open arms Oh, that's a great idea. That may be, yeah, it might be fun. Um, Why do all of our analogies of the mass first UASF situation involve us as the villains? I don't know. We we just like the dark side. It's it's just how it works out. It's unfortunate. I I think we're the good guys. We're you know <laughs> keeping everybody responsible, aligning the incentives, making sure these things go off. Just making sure these things go off. Maybe not without Hitch, but we're making sure these things go off. And I also think the diligence that's required around a mat or a UASF is just so much greater than a mass. I don't know if that's a selling point or a detracting point, but like because you can't really measure the support for it, you have to just have an enormous amount of time before your flag days that your code is deployed, multiple versions of your software. You need to be able to you know, have a multi-year educational and PR campaign, which like keeping anybody's attention for that long is super fucking difficult. It, there's so much, there's so much reason to dislike a UASF until you get to the part where nodes are no longer required to delegate their sovereignty over the network and the state of the network to a miner. So I think. This is interesting because I feel like just with this conversation, at least for me, the discourse has shifted to something more positive um, for CTV. So I can see that eventually being activated. Um, what may be needed is the incentive, which is scaling. And for now, it seems like Lightning can scale to the number of users we have right now for Bitcoin. So it, it's kind of like the need factor, like with, with the block size wars, we, we did have a bit of a need factor, like fees were pretty high on chain and we didn't really have lightning. But now we, now we do have lightning and it's kind of like, the challenge here is actually more onboarding people to, and educating people to use lightning. Um, so 
I, I kind of wonder if, if there is going to be this need collectively for for scaling lightning even more with something like CTV or Rope Vault. Um, L2. Yeah, and yeah. I think that need absolutely exists. Lightning is currently in an infancy, but like it's we wouldn't be pursuing this if we didn't think that it had the capacity to scale everything that we need in the world. No, I, I think it can that would scale. Be a huge waste of engineering. No, I, I'm I'm more saying that we're we're not getting up to the throughput um, capacity where people are getting feeling the hurt. You know, like yeah, there's they're, they're lacking the the incentive yeah. to push into lightning, and it's further complicated by the fact that when there is the incentive, they can't immediately act. Hmm. So I, I kind of wonder if this is going to happen in within a within a couple of years or not. Um, it probably they'll probably attempt it, but I think over and over, and I think that it's actually a cycle we've seen recurring throughout Bitcoin's history already. Um, there are frequent infrequently fee events, and those fee events push people to optimize their on-chain content, mm-hmm. and they push people to optimize their fee management, and they push people to optimize into layers in their use cases. Uh, they also pushed people uh, in the past to attack Bitcoin to try and force other actors to subsidize their costs. And uh, it has been probably the point of biggest contention in Bitcoin's history, the fees. It's interesting because like, as the fees of Bitcoin uh, move dynamically through supply and demand of block, block space, um, different use cases become viable or not on-chain. And that isn't something people quite understand or expect. They don't appreciate the idea that there is a fee marketplace, even if that marketplace currently values fees at zero, and that it's dynamic and it's going to change. And there's going to be times when, like, it costs maybe significant money yeah. if there's a lot of demand. Like That's I, how an auction works. I was I was um, making a comment on this the other day. Is like there's a whole cohort of Bitcoiners from the past five years that have never experienced fifty dollar Bitcoin on chain fees, and now they are they've been spoiled with one sat per byte fees for the past I don't know two years, maybe more. Like so, it, it's like they're just they're just catching up to what is possible in terms of how expensive things could be um, when there's a lot of activity on chain. So I think there might be a, a bit of a sticker shock education moment for this new cohort of Bitcoiners. There always is, but I don't think it'll compare to the first cohort of Bitcoiners. Like the ones that were dealing with the fact that they could zero comp, zero fee anything all the time whenever they want and we're building infrastructure around it. Like those people the shock that it was to them to realize that there was a fee market because they had no idea it was so much that they went like they forked with the companies the block size wars because they promised them that it'd be zero fees forever yeah that that's like a level of derangement that is like how, how did you how did you get to that point <laughs> it's like well it's i get it you want to have your cake and eat it too you want everything to be free you want you know nothing to be scarce yeah, it's just like but it just, I, it's just it's a rejection it's a rejection of the reality of the situation and it's just like yeah uh, I, I, 
Yeah. And it's easy to understand the business perspective too. It's like, do you want to spend uh, resources maintaining technical infrastructure and developing new code and keeping up with Bitcoin features and security and things? No, you want you want nodes to get bigger and handle more transaction volumes so that you don't have to optimize anything. You can just shove more users through more space. That is such a lazy answer. <laughs> it's like, it, well, but it's not, so typical of company yeah. engineering. It's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Just throw throw more hardware on it. Make it uh, bigger. Yeah. No. Ugh, I, I don't respect that. But whatever. <laughs> it's honestly, it's good thinking in in many business contexts. Like anything else would be premature optimization, right? Like you you build it, they will come, and then you optimize. They were treating Bitcoin like a business. And they weren't wrong about the business parts. That's how you would do it if it was a business. Yeah, I think they got that wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not a business, right? Like, you can't treat it like it is. Yeah. You can't treat it like we're going to just try and onboard the whole world simultaneously. And we're going to do it on, you know, with, with full trust and we're scaling exactly the way traditional architecture and infrastructure does and expect to preserve any of the properties that we value. They didn't value the properties, they valued the adoption, right? Yeah, adoption at any any cost is going to like really self-defeating. Yeah, it really waters down what we're actually trying to do here. Um and this way one of the memes that pisses me off is that like Bitcoin is for everyone. I feel like it's for everyone who can learn how to Bitcoin properly, and that has a that that has a lot of work in it. So, Bitcoin unfortunately is not for everyone. It's for people who can can learn and um, educate themselves in a self sovereign way to get to the I think point. that that's still most people like I think if you can learn to drive a car which is like you having sovereign autonomy over a freaking death machine <laughs> and you can use it every day safely without killing anybody like I think you, if you can do that you can also manage your own money and the fiction that you can't manage your own money because it's too dangerous is kind of ridiculous it'd be like telling you that you can't be allowed to have freedom of movement because you people are notoriously bad navigators and they'd get lost like yeah maybe some people are bad at managing their money and you know what maybe they should delegate to their people they trust family friends public trusts but not the bank not a fucking fintech company not not anybody that you don't trust like and bitcoin allows you the granularity of that trust trust nobody trust somebody trust everybody i don't give a fuck but bitcoin lets you do it yeah, most people can do this. It just takes time and, and work. So, yeah, go try. Go build something. Go run a Bitcoin node. Go go run testnet Bitcoin. Google uh, Bitcoin testnet faucet. Get some testnet coins. Go download Green Wallet or Electrum Wallet. Run it in testnet mode. Play with your coins. Go to htlc.me. Uh, use Lightning testnet coins. Go to testnet.yalls.org. Play with your testnet coins on social media sites. Seriously, you can do so much. You can test your backup solutions. You can test new wallets. You can you you can explore and experiment with Bitcoin scripts. You can do anything. Bitcoin is empowering. Be empowered.